Hello, and welcome to the 50th episode of Burn Your Draft, the podcast exploring the Reed Senior Thesis process and experience. I'm your host, Albert Corellis, and today we'll be talking with Reed Chinese grad Stephanie Xu about her thesis on same-gender love in Chinese literature. Take it away, Stephanie. Hi, um, my name is Stephanie Xu. I'm from the San Francisco Bay Area. I use she and they pronouns. I majored in the Chinese department with my advisor, Jing Jiang. I just finished writing my thesis in December. It's titled Writing Love and Liminality, Female Homoeroticism in Early Republican Chinese Fiction. Do you want to unpack the title for us a little bit? Give us just like a kind of breakdown of its pieces? Yeah, sure. So the thesis contains five women-authored short stories from China's early Republican period. So that would be like the 1920s and 30s. And all of them center on female-female love. So I end up having three chapters. And the first chapter is sort of dealing with a story that's more skeptical and pessimistic about same-gender love. And then the second is more of a hopeful portrayal. And then I have a third chapter, which is also kind of my favorite chapter. In that one, I talk about what I would call pseudo-marriages or sort of these marriage packs between women and sort of unpack how these three short stories are using language to express same-gender love and celebrate it. So, yeah. Before we get super into the weeds of, of the thesis, can you tell me about how you got into the Chinese major? Like, was it always an interest for you? Uh, or, or did it take kind of a little bit of time settling into read to figure out what you were going to study? So I actually remember the moment really well, because when I was a freshman, I wasn't really sure what I wanted to major in. And so sometime the spring semester of my freshman year, I went to my Chinese professor Alexi and was like, what do I do? (laughs) Um, And he was just like, well, if you don't know what to do, why don't you just try taking as many different courses as you can? For example, one of my literature classes. (laughs) I was like, okay. (laughs) Um, And so I ended up picking, he had a course called Love and Late Imperial China. And I'm just like, a sucker for like any romance story. (laughs) So I was like, okay, I'm in. And I took that class and I just sort of fell in love and (laughs) ha ha. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) But um, that's how I got here today. And I feel like it's very serendipitous because my topic ended up being about love too. So I think it's just carried me here. That's so lovely. Yeah. Do you want to do you want to tell me more about these short stories? I'm like really interested in the stories themselves but also like in their historical context. I guess what would be helpful to know is that this period in Chinese history, China's just coming out of like over 2000 years of imperial history. And so there's a lot of intellectual discussion about what China's future is going to look like. And intellectuals are looking at the West Mm -hmm. and they're trying to figure out how do we move forward and modernize because you have like the opium war and the Sino-Japanese war. So China's like trying to build itself up as a nation. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of a period of like political instability and reckoning. Yeah. And a lot of people just having a lot of ideas of like what China needs to become. Kind of like cultural identity. Exactly. And so that's really important because I think a lot of these discourses are dominated by men and but they're female centric. So like men are talking about how like gender equality can move the nation forward. And so you have women at the Mm -hmm. center of China's future, but then 
their voices are somewhat missing. And so some of this thesis is really trying to understand what those voices are trying to say. What's the status of like homoeroticism in Chinese history? Had it had a, a history of like acceptance in the past? Um, so I wouldn't say acceptance. It's kind of an interesting thing because a lot of people like to talk about China as having really strong and accepting, mm-hmm. like, I guess, queer culture or like homoeroticism prior to the modern era. Mm-hmm. And I would say it's a little bit more complicated than that. Mm-hmm. So there are a lot of representations of homoerotic love throughout Chinese history and literature, mm-hmm. which is awesome. Mm-hmm. But especially with female-female love, it's often either sort of didactic, like kind of like a this is yeah. either a bad example or more just like an abnormal yeah. example of love. And so I would say it's not really uplifted, but it's also yeah. not totally it's not totally like a bad thing either. Yeah. I think it's just sort of pushed to the sidelines a lot. It's like represented, but not really like normalized. Right. Exactly. Yeah. That's a great way of putting it. <laughs> nice. What did you get out of looking at these specific stories? Because um, you said that that there was one that was kind kind of like negative on its acceptance of of the homoeroticism portrayed. There was there was one that was more positive, right? Yeah. So one of the big things I was looking at with my thesis was just sort of how these discourses of same gender love and how women were writing about female female love gets linked into those larger discourses of nation and sort of where China is going. Mm-hmm. What I found was that these women writers didn't think of same gender love as separate from those larger questions, that these things had to be talked about together. So gender equality and women's rights had to be talked about with Mm -hmm. same gender love and the Mm. nation and its progress had to be talked about with same gender love. And that's, it's kind of um, like a complex issue, but Mm -hmm. basically since there was this discourse of like women's rights leading China into the future, you also have an intense focus on women. But then there's also sort of this anxiety of like, when you give women more rights, they're Mm -hmm. leaving the home and like getting educated outside of the home, which was not happening prior to this period, women were being educated at home. Mm -hmm. And then so all of a sudden you have these women's communities outside of the Confucian family structure and women building community finding affinity with each other and like these male intellectuals are getting really nervous about it because they're like, oh, like some people are not wanting to come back to this sort of heteronormative structure and that's like a danger to society or whatever. So the concepts of gender equality that are being promoted by male intellectuals didn't really see that ideally having an impact on like familial structures, right? Because because it sounds like the male intellectuals are, are definitely like into some concept of gender equality. It just like doesn't leave space for critiquing the like kind of Confucian family ideal. Honestly, so this is not really my research area, yeah. but okay, I okay. think they're pretty <laughs> I think they're pretty conflicted about it. There's also this huge discourse of quote unquote free love. Mm-hmm. And this idea is that if you can choose the person that you're gonna marry, you're freeing yourself from the Confucian family structure because you're not allowing your parents to choose a match for you. You're going out and you're dating and you're choosing who to love and building your own life around love. And so love Mm -hmm. is actually really important in this period as like a 
avenue to progress and yeah, freedom. It's like part of the concept yeah. of modernization. Right. But then you have also this sort of limitation that this is about heterosexual yeah. love and it's not about anything that doesn't really fall into mm-hmm. that like neat little category. And so your stories, like some of them troubled this idea. Yeah. So, um, I think all of the stories kind of deal with this issue in that basically all of the stories have these female-female couples, and all five of them are really sad stories. Um, one of the women ends up being pressured by her family to go off and marry a man. And so mm-hmm. every single story that I read last year was like extremely depressing. That checks and that out sense. that like, gay stories from the 20s and 30s are like not the happiest of yeah, theirs. Unfortunately. But yeah. there are like moments of happiness that mm-hmm. can be drawn out, which I'd love to talk about in yeah. a second. Um, a number of these stories are basically saying like, hey, there's this ideal of free love. Mm-hmm. And we're saying that women's rights are going to push our nation forward. But then at the same time, if women can't choose to build strong friendships or Mm -hmm. long-term committed relationships with each other. If women can't align themselves with each other and choose women's communities, that is ultimately not truly free love Mm -hmm. if people can't choose to love outside of the heteronormative structure. And it's not real gender equality if women Mm -hmm. are still bound to that system. And so I think that's what these stories are sort of highlighting and why same gender love can't be talked about outside of these issues of nation Mm -hmm. and gender rights, because it just for these writers, they went hand in hand. Yeah. Yeah. The political milieu is kind of a a necessary part of of like how and why these female homoerotic relationships existed. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Do you want to do you want to tell me a bit about the the moments of joy that there are to find in yeah. these? Yeah. Okay. So, um I've like two sort of favorite stories and they're both in that third chapter that I really like. So one of them is called Li Shu's Diary and it's a fictional diary by this woman Li Shu who at the beginning of the story we're told is dead. And then by the end of the story, we realize that she's died of heartbreak. So it's it's like this really sad story because the person that she falls in love with ultimately gets pressured by her family to marry a man. Mm-hmm. And then that woman writes a letter back to Leisha and is like, you need to give up on this life. And, you know, same gender love is not viable at all. But before all of that sad stuff happens, there's this moment when they sort of confess to each other and decide to be in a relationship. Mm-hmm. And Leisha has this beautiful sort of idyllic dream. The way I talk about this dream in my uh, thesis is basically that we can read this sort of naturalistic imagery as erotic imagery. Mm-hmm. So in short, it's like a sex dream. Mm-hmm. And this is like not completely my idea. I follow another scholar, Sang Zulan, and she talks about in her work this lens of perversity mm-hmm. and needing to use a quote unquote perverse lens or like, and by perverse, I mean going against what is considered natural or acceptable or normal. Mm-hmm. Um, and so using this lens to be able to see what has been hidden or what has been forced out of sight. And so she's using it in this very sense of like, we can use Freudian dream theory to mm-hmm. analyze this dream and understand that it's about sex. And then I talk about how we can also use sort of this native Chinese reading strategy, mm-hmm. which basically 
comes from actually the heterosexual romantic canon. And it's basically this theme that you'll see across like romantic plays and mm-hmm. novels where um, like naturalistic imagery is used to replace sex scenes. And so it's like in the context of those heterosexual plays, that's like a really obvious sign Mm -hmm. that like we're talking about sex here. But then in this story, it's traditionally not read as like a gay story or about romance because it's between two women. And so it's not read as erotic or anything like that. And it's like, it's right there. It's so obvious. It's like following in the same kind of traditions that are used to denote eroticism in other contexts. Yeah. So it's like, it is sort of perverting the beauty of the dream, but it's also... It's like doing the same thing that they did in a million other stories. It's doing the exact same thing. Yeah. It's like... The need to feel like this is a perversion of what's normal is like pointing to the strength of heteronormativity, mm-hmm. even now today, like when people yeah. are reading it. This, this is like probably a question that you don't have like a great answer to, but I'm <laughs> really curious. Was the move to like modernize and, and like I understand it as in some senses like westernize, was that marked by a like greater cultural impulse towards heteronormativity? Like, like, do you, do you have any like takes or research on that? Yeah. So it's not my research, but Song Zilan does talk about in her book that especially with female-female love, homosexuality as a concept gets brought into China in this period. So Mm -hmm. like the literal term, like 同性爱, homosexuality, is actually coming into China in the early 20th century. And so people are definitely talking about Mm -hmm. it. But what Song's work shows is that a lot of the focus is on female-female love. Mm -hmm. So like men, it's kind of like, okay, a phenomenon move on but for women there's like a lot of anxiety and people are writing about it and there's many different angles so it's like pathologize Mm -hmm. there are definitely like sort of affirming and validating perspectives being published as well and then you have people being like oh this is just because women are confused and like Mm -hmm. they're all in these girls schools and just getting confused having a weird phase yeah exactly a phase because there's also people who are like oh this is like a normal step to developing real affection. Yeah. So they're like, in order to get to real heterosexual love, we have to go through this stage of like, like that's like a way to normalize, but then also like diminish or like displace the the place of female heterosexual. Yeah. That's super fun. Um, um, I'm also really fat, like captivated by the idea that in the, in the story you were describing the like impact of heteronormativity, ends up falling not on the woman who gets married, but on like the lover that she has left behind. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's almost like the, the the negative outcomes aren't from the heterosexual marriage itself, but like from what it does to homo- homoerotic relationships. This is like really fascinating to me. Yeah, it's interesting because I would say like it's both too. Like there yeah. is definitely what you described. And then also the author seems to also write about like women getting married and then their lives just kind of crumbling after. Mm-hmm. So, um, <laughs> so, so like heterosexual yeah. marriage also is <laughs> I mean, I have this one was, story. Was the author oh, married? Yeah, I'm pretty sure she was married, actually. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, to a man also. Did, did her husband read her stories? Like, did he know what she no was? no clue. <laughs> but she also did have this very sort of public relationship with another female writer. And they oh, wrote each other these love cool. letters <laughs> that you can, like, read. And they're just very, like 
<sighs> expressive and like did, did, did they contain any like beautiful naturalistic imagery <laughs> <laughs> i don't not that i've read mm-hmm. but there are like just these sort of expressions of love that almost transcend or like exceed um, what is sort of considered normal for heterosexual love. So one of the writers says like, you are like myself. And that is like even more than just like, I love you. It's like, we are almost the same person. It's beautiful. Yeah. You said there was another moment in your stories that you really like. Yeah. I have this second story and this is actually the only one of my five stories that is currently translated in English. So you can actually go read that (laughs) right now. But it's called Once Upon a Time. And it's about these two women who fall in love after being cast in Romeo and Juliet in their school's play. (laughs) Yeah, that's so good. I know. And my favorite part about this is it's actually a rewrite. So the original story is written by this man. And I've read that story. And it's Mm -hmm. honestly like really awful. (laughs) Um, Because it's It just plays into these stereotypes Mm -hmm. of like, you know, the ones that I mentioned earlier of like, this is a developmental stage or sort of a confusion. Like these two women just think that they're Romeo and Juliet and so they've fallen in love. In this rewrite, the author is really interested in developing intimacy and weaves this beautiful story Mm -hmm. of these two women falling in love. And it's not just them on stage. It's their offstage interactions. There's something like authentic about it. Yeah, it definitely feels more intimate, more authentic. And I think one of the great things that she does is that there's this moment where one of the two women, the one who has a harder time openly expressing her love, Mm -hmm. professes her love to the other, but in English instead of Chinese. And this is like to me, a really huge moment because in the original story, English was used, but it was only like quotes from Shakespeare. Mm-hmm. And so sort of the impression you get from that original story is, oh, they're quoting from Shakespeare. And so they're mm-hmm. sort of borrowing his words yeah. as their own and they're confused. The words like, aren't really their yeah, own. Exactly. But then in the retelling, the profession of love is entirely her own words, but in English. And so instead of the stage being a site of delusion or confusion, it becomes like this site where you can almost transcend the real world and you have this like bubble in which you can freely express your love. And so the language of the stage becomes freeing. And Mm -hmm. I just thought that was like really beautiful and brilliant of her to take that story and just flip it around. She like totally warps its kind of like meanings. Yeah. The stage becomes a site for, for free love. Yeah. Nice. What what was the process like of making your thesis? Like like what what was your day to day experience of like doing work? Yeah. Oh gosh. I wish that I could say that it was like structured or whatever, <laughs> but it was a really it was a hot mess. Yeah. Um, yeah. Pe- pe- people come yeah. on the podcast and they're like, "So my plan was to do this, exactly. and then I didn't do any of that." Exactly. Yeah. Like it was like I'm gonna work two hours every day, and it's gonna be at the same time, mm-hmm. and then all of that went no. out the window. So there were days where I just like 
didn't even bother opening the document, mm-hmm. like wasn't even thinking about Can't it. Stare at it. Yeah. <laughs> and then there were days where I was in the library for like 10 hours, just like going at it. So for me, that was kind of my process was just like when the ideas hit, they would start flowing and I just kind of let it go. And it ended up looking like probably at least one all-nighter every week <laughs> so that I could get my draft into my advisor and be like, I have something to show for the stuff, last I week. Swear. <laughs> yeah. It was honestly a crazy process. It was really grueling, but I think that was the process that I had to have for myself. And I don't know, hopefully like other people feel <laughs> validated <laughs> by that or something. Were there any like skills that you developed or, or like improved over the course of doing your thesis? Like, like things you were forced to get good at? Well, so I did end up having to do a lot of translation for this thesis. I didn't realize it when I was going in, but four out of the five texts that I was working with were not translated. And so I was like, oh, cool. I have to do all the translations. So did, did you like translate the full text or like just the sections you pulled to, to, to cite? I wish that I translated all five of them, but I ended up translating one of them in full and then just the citations that I needed for the That's other. That's still like insane. <laughs> like, like just translating a full story is already like an immense piece of work. Yeah, I know. I just like now I have this translation that I'm just sitting on. <laughs> That's really sick. Do you, do, do you have, like, any, any like, future dreams of publishing it? My advisor wants me to. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'd like to get um, some of this stuff out into the world. I'd also yeah. like to finish up the full translations of some of the other mm-hmm. stories. Um, and I'd love for people to present yeah. someone. <laughs> yeah, and I'd love for people to read them because mm-hmm. um, I think they're important. I would love to be able to read them. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. yeah I didn't know that I needed, like, more Chinese lesbian content in my life, but I'm, like, quickly realizing that I do. Did you run into any, um, like, unexpected challenges when working on your thesis? Yeah, so aside from just the translating issue, I think one of the hard things for me to figure out was how to talk about queerness and historical queerness, Mm -hmm. because I think something that a lot of scholars in Asian queer studies have to grapple with is just this idea that like the language and the conceptual framework we have to talk about queerness is very rooted in like a Western yeah. historical and cultural context. Yeah, because you said that like the word for homosexuality only got introduced during modernization despite there yeah. being like representation of same-sex relationships before exactly, that. Exactly, exactly. And so like you also have the problem of like none of the characters or the writers are themselves really explicitly identifying with mm-hmm. any sort of label. Even the like newly formed label is not really being used. Yeah. I have a couple stories that use the word like one time in the entire story. So it's it's kind of like this thing that I struggled with and something that I wrote a lot about in my introduction of not wanting to label anybody as queer because I felt mm-hmm. like that would be sort of ahistorical. Yeah. Trying to figure out what my approach would be because I did want to think of it through a queer theory lens and think mm-hmm. about it as queerness. Like if I can draw an example or draw a comparison, yeah. like, you know, in Hume 110, (laughs) everybody's first class, we talk about Sappho. There's kind of like this discussion of like, well, do we call Sappho a lesbian? And then there's some people who are like, well, not in the same terms of like what people who Mm -hmm. identify with the term lesbian now mean. So like we can't claim her as queer because that's not an identity category that she 
Because identity is so like sociopolitically constructed that if you go to like a vastly different sociopolitical context, right. like our same categories don't make sense, question mark. But at the same time, it's like, like I'm a, I'm a human being person who wants to be like, like find representation in other exactly. media. Right? Yeah, like exactly. how do you straddle that? Yeah. Like I, that was sort of where I, I ended up was like, okay, so the language is not perfect and we're going to try and work around that. So that's why I use terms like same gender love. I'm mm -hmm. trying to be, you know, specific and not impose my own sort of understanding of yeah. queerness from my positionality onto these stories. I want to like listen to what they're talking about. Mm -hmm. And then at the same time, I think that queerness as a lens is really, really helpful um, and really important because, like you said, representation is really important. And us as queer people looking into the past and seeing reflections of ourselves, that's super valuable. Yeah, <laughs> and, yeah. Uh, this is just my hot take. But like if we're not allowed to call like historical figures gay, then we shouldn't be able to call them straight either. And I think that straight people shouldn't be allowed to find <laughs> heterosexual romance relatable. Yeah. They're being ahistoric. I agree. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but that actually brings me to, there was this really cool moment in that story. I talked about Leisha's mm -hmm. diary where she actually is like reading these old classical Chinese texts and she sees this one really important historical figure and he's like known for being a really loyal minister to his king. Mm -hmm. And she's like, she points it out as love and she That's calls so it love. Sick. And so she's like, this guy is gay. She's doing the same thing <laughs> yeah, as you. Exactly. Yeah. And then she is like, after that moment, she sort of develops confidence, sort of develops her identification with mm -hmm. same gender love. This validates her attraction to her friend. And so I don't know. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like you said, it's the same project. And so I feel like I, I sort of talk about queer ancestry in mm -hmm. my conclusion. And I think I am searching for queer ancestry in these texts. Yeah. And these texts themselves are searching for it as well. And I think that's like a really cool that's resonance. That's so beautiful. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Can you tell me a little bit about like the outcome of your thesis process? Like what sort of document did you end up creating? Yeah. So the thesis looks like sort of three analytical chapters. And the way I ended up organizing it is not actually in chronological order. I kind of see it as like a trajectory of hope <laughs> and we get more hopeful towards the end. Because I think that it's important to be hopeful <laughs> in like with these texts where the authors themselves, many of them are searching for hope. Mm -hmm. and searching for like a future for same gender love. Women can love each other someday in the future. Mm -hmm. A lot of them express that sentiment. And so that's kind of how I decided to structure yeah. <laughs> yeah. my I mean, Especially thesis. in like queer history and theory, there is often a like dearth of hopeful examples. So it's like nice to really value the, the hope that we can get. Yeah. And then the end of it is just a translation. So mm -hmm. I just have like my thesis and then like a chunk of translation <laughs> at the back. <laughs> That's fine. Yeah. <laughs> so you, you mentioned a little bit that you're still working with the Chinese department. Um, can you tell me a bit about like how you think your thesis will affect your future studies, your future work opportunities? So I'm still trying to figure out where I'm going mm -hmm. after this. I'm not really sure. But I think if I do go to grad school, I want to keep doing Chinese literature and queer theory together. Mm -hmm. I think that's like work that is important to me personally. Mm -hmm. And I think in general, writing the thesis was really important to me because 
I've always had this on and off relationship with writing where Mm -hmm. it's really difficult, but I also kind of find it very fulfilling. Oh, yeah. And with the thesis, I found that in the last few months of writing, when I really knew what the project was about, when I really like was deep in it and I like was falling in love with this topic, it was so much easier to write. And Mm -hmm. it was just sort of, I I needed to write my thesis to really be able to say like, I do love writing and Mm -hmm. like, this is something that I think I want to factor into the rest of my life and my career. It's like a testament to your own um, abilities, wills, and desires. What advice do, would you give to readies, either like thesis advice or just advice about doing read in general? For thesis advice, I would say, you know, choose a topic that you really love, that you are going to have a fun time researching and you're not going to like have to drag yourself to go do your thesis work. Something that happened for me is that my thesis sort of was running in the background all the time. Mm-hmm towards the end. And I think if you can find that topic that you're thinking about, even when you're not thinking about it, (laughs) I think that's really important. Do you have any people you'd like to acknowledge? Any like shout outs, people who are helpful to you during your thesis process? Yeah, definitely. To my advisor, Jing. Uh, She's like my greatest supporter through the last few years and has really sort of built up my confidence in writing and encouraging my ideas. So... <laughs> yeah, a big thank you to her. And then actually wrote like two pages of really sappy <laughs> acknowledgments and they've nice. already gone out. So yeah, I guess. <laughs> Thanks so much for being on the podcast, Stephanie. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thanks so much, Stephanie. I had so much fun hearing about your thesis. Since talking with you, I've been busy keeping hope alive, reading one terrible, cheesy lesbian romance story after the next. And I'm excited to be able to read your translations someday. I hope you'll join us again to hear more from students and alumni about what it means to burn your draft. If you like this episode, be sure to subscribe, check out our Twitter and Facebook pages, and rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. Burn Your Draft is a production of Reed College and the Center for Life Beyond Reed, created jointly by students, alumni, and staff. This episode was produced, hosted, and engineered by me, Reed College student Albert Corrales. Our executive producer is Seth Paskin, class of 1990, with technical advising from Joe Janiga. Our project manager is Nate Martin, class of 2016. Our intro and outro music are by Jack Salvucci, class of 2020. Our podcast art was made by alumni Henry Gotchlick and Lillian Pham. This podcast was made possible by a gift from Seth Paskin.